You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of his word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Good morning, church. Uh, welcome to worship. I'm so thankful you joined us. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is uh, Pastor Chad Wiles. I'm one of the lead pastors here at the Field Church and I oversee our counseling ministry. And uh, I'm thankful that uh, periodically, every six to eight weeks, I get to come before you and minister the Word of God in areas of counseling and areas of life dominating issues that are hard for us to understand, but we really need to understand what the Bible has to say to these areas so that we can see the freedom that the Word of God gives us. And so this morning, we're gonna be diving in to the subject of depression. This is a subject um, I've chosen because I, I think it's something that all of us at some point in our lives uh, can deal with. Um, and so I wanted to just take some time to define what it, what it looks like, what it means, and then to understand it biblically in the way that God has laid it out in His Word. And so to do that, I wanna begin uh, by looking at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manu Manual of Mental Health Disorders, or the shortened version of that is DSM-5. And so we'll refer to that from here on out because it's a mouthful to say. Um, and so the definition of depression, according to uh, the DSM-5, is that depression is a persistent mood that is characterized by intense feelings of inadequacy, sadness, hopelessness, pessimism, irritability, apprehension, and a decreased interest in or ability to enjoy normal activity. This mood must last at least two weeks to be diagnosed as clinically depressed. So in order to be diagnosed, an individual must have five of the following criteria according to the DSM-5. Number one, a depressed mood for most of the day, occurring most days in a two-week period. Number two, unexplained sadness. Number three, decreased interest in and little pleasure from daily activities. Number four, increased or decreased appetite, which results in weight loss or weight gain. Number five, insomnia, difficulty sleeping, or hypersomnia, excessive sleeping. Uh, number six, psychomotor agitation, repetitive behavior that is unproductive, like pacing, wringing of hands, etc., or uh, psychomotor retardation, which brings behaviors to slow down. Um, so you have a slowing in your normal behavior. Number seven, fatigue and lack of energy. Number eight, feeling of worthlessness. Number nine, preoccupation with guilt. Number 10, diminished ability to think and concentrate. And number 11, reoccurring thoughts of death or suicidal ideation. Now we can agree that many of us, as we read through and think through this list, could be qualified for this diagnosis at some point in our lives. Many of us have experienced probably at least five on this list at some point or another, or will at some point or another. What we know about psychology is that it's an effective observational science. I, reading this list, I have 
um, no problems with this list. This is something that um, I've experienced or I've seen in people that I've counseled as well. And looking at the criteria being present, we can all agree that this is probably a normative issue um, of the human experience. And in the right circumstances, we could all struggle with any or all of these on this list. The statistics back this up, according to the CDC or the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which we're pretty familiar with in this time of COVID, um, their stats from 2013 to 2016 said that 8.1% of American adults had depression in a given two-week period. As observed in other studies, depression was almost twice as common among women as among men. Um, depression prevalence did not really differ by age. So that kind of shows us that at any point in time in our lives, we could experience this. The proportion of adults with depression increased with decrease in family income level. And about 80% of adults with depression reported at least some difficulty with work, home, or social activities due to their depression symptoms. And so we can see that, that there's a cause and effect of environmental changes or, or vice versa. From 2007, 2008, compared to 2015 to 2016, the prevalence of depression among men and women showed no significant changes, which shows us that there's no major increases in our society, but there's no decreases as well. There's no spikes, there's no changes, which just tells us that this is something that has been going on for a long time and continues to lack answers to really solve the issue. Here's the, the uh, some really interesting data that I think was important for us to think about as we dig in further is percentages here do not include populations considered at higher risk for depression. So like those in nursing homes or other institutions. It also doesn't include persons currently treated for depression. Um, and uh, it does not include some persons with depression that may not been able or willing to participate in the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. So what that tells us is these findings represent a really conservative estimate of depression. So if we back up, it said 8.1%. It wouldn't be crazy to think that's double, triple, even quadruple the amount of people if they included all the people in the statistics that struggle with depression at some level. So once again, what we can conclude is that sadness or prolonged sadness is what I like to define it biblically or depression as, as we have put on it is part of the human experience. We will all deal with sadness at some level in our lives and it has real consequences. And I wanna be very empathetic this morning uh, towards this experience. It's not something we should take lightly. For instance, suicide, suicidal ideation, which is the extreme result that ended in death is suicide stats in America in 2018, most recent ones we have, um, showed that we had 48,000 344 deaths due to suicides. That doesn't count all the attempts. That's the, the deaths. And so death per 100,000 100, is 14.5 per 100,000 in the U.S. And it's the 10th cause of death in the United States. Now to take this even closer to home, here in the North Shore where we live, the number of deaths in the same year were 52, which doesn't seem like a lot, but when you compare our uh, 100,000 uh, ratio, like we did with the United States, our number was 17. The United States was 14.5. So we are higher than the national average 
Um, and our state average is 12. So we're the highest in the state as well as higher than the national average of suicide. So we know, and many of us here in this area have experienced depression or prolonged sadness in a way that has led to very devastating results. And so I think it's important and imperative that we dig into this issue and try to understand it biblically and seek to find hope in this because so far we haven't been able to find much hope for depression, especially when it comes to secular psychology. So how should we as believers interpret depression? Is depression a disorder and thereby we should treat it medically? That's the big question that we have. And so we, we have established in past counseling sermons, if you've listened to some of ours in the past when we've dealt with other issues, that secular psychology comes from the foundation of Darwinism, which has the fundamental belief that God does not exist. That's the theology that backs modern psychology, secular psychology, right? That man doesn't have a creation origin of God involved, that man happened through single cell organisms and has evolved and, and we're made up by chemicals and cells and, and parts. And, and so the way that we approach issues is medically then, right? But we know that by God's general grace, we don't wanna be reductionistic in our view, that because of God's general grace and mercy, he allows men who do not acknowledge him to have wisdom and understanding or knowledge when it comes to different things in our world. Scientists, doctors have had many great discoveries who do not acknowledge God. That's not outside of God's realm. It's just part of his general grace that he allows that to happen, right? So let's look at the, the treatment and ask ourselves, is the approach that is taken by secular psychology or, or, or medical um, doctors, is it the right way to go? Is, is this something that we should place our hope in or understanding, right? Well, the treatment for depression at the psychological level is medication and it is viewed as a medical issue, right? The, f the foundation of the medical viewpoint is the chemical imbalance theory. Many of you have heard of this. We've talked about it before. So one caveat that I wanna put in this is that I do believe that it is possible that at some level, some a percentage of people who struggle with depression may suffer from some sort of neurological or physical cause that could be causing that that we're unaware of. Um, that is very possible. And it's in the confines of scripture. It shows us that we are dead and dying and our bodies are decaying and breaking apart. And so the possibility of something like that being true is absolutely something that we would consider, right? The problem is we don't know if that's true, right? The problem with the chemical imbalance theory is that it has never been proven or verified through hard data. And also many presumptions that, that we've made over the, the years and centuries have been disproven to this point. So the likelihood of the chemical imbalance theory being true has only gotten weakened, not, not stronger as technolo te technology has advanced. So for example, one of the beliefs that drove the chemical imbalance theory uh, which really um, took hold in the early 80s, was started by Santiago Cajal, who won a Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1906. He stated in 1913 that in adult brains, nerve paths are something fixed, ended, and immutable. Okay? So in other words, you got what you got. And so if there's an abnormality in mood, then there must be something wrong with the chemicals in your brain because you must not have enough 
because all you have is what you have, right? It's immutable, unchangeable. However, in the past 20 years, because of advancement in technology, scientists have proven that the brain does have plasticity and is able to change. In a book written in 2008 entitled Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain, Sharon Begley writes, they found that between 500 to 1,000 new neural stem cells were born every day when the brain was supposed to be fixed and unchanging. That's very important and very significant because what this does, especially for us as believers, it lets us understand that the whole idea of Romans 12, to renew our mind is not something that God just tells us to do that we can't do, but that it's very real physically to renew your mind and change your thoughts and change your habits at the, at the neurological level. Thomas Insel, a psychiatrist who directs the National Institute of Mental Health, when asked about the chemical imbalance theory, he said, there's no biochemical imbalance that we have ever been able to demonstrate. And they've been testing it for 50 years. This is not a Christian man. This is just a psychiatrist who runs the National Institute of Mental Health, and he will claim and let you know that there has never been any biochemical imbalance that has ever been demonstrated or proven, right? I tell you all this, why on a Sunday morning are we talking about all this science and all this stuff? Well, because the primary diagnosis and treatment is medical. So why is that? Why is the primary diagnosis and treatment medical when there's no medically proven pathology that shows depression as a disease. It's not helpful. It doesn't bring the hope that we're longing for. Most of the time, the experience of many people who, who go in and trying to relieve their depression is prescription of, of psychotropic drugs that sometimes help, sometimes don't. And the prognosis is not great. And the side effects are usually worse than, than the, the way they make you feel in the good sense, and a lot of side effects are very dangerous, um, many of them um, being suicide um, is one of the side effects, and, and have seen that it happens in a significant amount of people who, who utilize psychotropic drugs. For, so for us, it's a dangerous thing that if it's not proven to be helpful, why are we putting our hope in that? I don't believe that psychologists or doctors are trying to maliciously lead us astray or hurt anyone. I don't want you to hear me say this as I'm working through this to disprove any of this. I believe that most people who go into the medical field or to the field of psychology desperately want to help. I believe that. But um, if we are putting our trust in people that, that look at man as, as, as only physical and not having a creator God, then, they're, then the only way that they can view something like depression is medically. They can't even consider the idea of a spiritual issue. And so Dr. Charles Hodges, um, he wrote this book, I'll show you here, called Good Mood, Bad Mood. It's been very helpful in my research on this subject. And he's a medical doctor as well as a biblical counselor. And here's what he says when he's speaking about the chemical imbalance theory. The The validity of the theory is important to anyone who either gives or receives care for depression. A faulty theory will lead to a faulty treatment. But even more important, when a theory is held to be true, it shapes our thinking about how to respond to the problem. 
Knowing that the chemical imbalance theory is not fact drives us to look elsewhere for better answers as physicians and counselors. And that's my hope today, is not to, to put down um, psychologists or physicians who I would disagree with or say that um, we're operating upon a faulty theory, but to say we need to look at this in a different light. And for us as, as, as Christians, our, our viewpoint, our theology, our basis is that we are created by God in his image. And so therefore we need to look to scripture to look through the lens of scripture to help understand this, this subject matter of depression. So in order to understand this issue of suffering and sadness, we need to ask a couple questions that we're gonna work on answering along the way. So is sadness and suffering an issue? It's something that we wanna bring to the table. I know that it's assumed because it feels bad to be sad for a prolonged period of time that it must be an issue. But I don't know if that's true in every case. Also, is there something wrong with us when we experience prolonged seasons of sadness? Do prolonged seasons of sadness represent that there's something inherently wrong with us? Or is it, a, is it something that God is using in our life? We also wanna ask the question, is it a disease to be remedied or is it a part of God's intentional design? These are questions that we need to bring to the table as we begin to try to understand the idea and the issue of depression or prolonged sadness. See, the world's assumption is that prolonged sadness and suffering are bad and not a part of the normal human experience. Therefore, it must need a cure. Well, why would we have this fundamental belief? Well, the fundamental belief that drives this assumption is that happiness is the goal of life and that everyone is entitled to be happy. We, we grow up on this idea. We, we hear it even from, from the time of school, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness as we study the Constitution to every Disney movie we've ever watched that says they will live happily ever after. The pursuit in life is happiness. The pursuit of happiness. It's a right, it's an entitlement. And listen, happiness is most definitely a grace of God. I'm not against happiness. It's not what I'm here to say. But... We need to understand, although happiness is definitely a grace of God, it's not the goal of life. It's not the goal of life. Happiness is not the goal of life. The goal of life is to know God and to walk with God, have a relationship with God, to worship and be image bearers of God. That's our goal. If we get to experience happiness, it's definitely a grace of God and we consider that a blessing. But we also need to consider is sadness, if sadness is a part of the human experience or the part of God's character, then we need to see that as a blessing as well. So if we're created in the image of God, we must look to God and his character to see how we should look at the, the subject matter of sadness and decide how we should interact with it as well. And so the best way to look is to look into God's character. The first thing that I wanna show us is in Genesis chapter six, verses five through seven, which shows us that God experiences sadness when he looks upon sin. God experiences sadness when he looks upon sin. Look what he says in Genesis 6, five through seven. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was altogether evil at the time. So the Lord saw man's wickedness. Here's what he says. And the Lord regretted 
that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, every man and beast and crawling creature and bird of the air for I am grieved that I have made them. Only Noah found favor in the eyes of God. We see this grief and so we can conclude that God experiences sadness when he looks upon sin. We see this as well in Isaiah 53 uh, verse three when he speaks about Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Because of the sin of man, um, Jesus experienced so many sorrows. He was sorrowful about sin. Their sin is what put him on the cross. He experienced suffering and trials because of the sin of man, but it's through his death on the cross that, that we receive the gift of grace and salvation. And so we see as we look into the character of God that sadness exists and exists primarily when sin is involved, right? So if we are created in the image of God, then we must conclude that our natural response to sin should be sadness. Sadness is a God-given emotion that is useful and good for us to draw us closer to himself and his glory. Romans 8, 28, I love um, what Paul says here. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The purpose of God working all things together for our good. And listen, he does not cause sin to happen, but he utilizes sin in this world to work together for the purpose of those who love him for what purpose? To conform to the image of his son. He is helping us to become more and more like his son, Jesus. So we don't approach our sadness and suffering without hope. As believers in Christ, we understand that God uses struggles and trials as a tool to bring us closer to God and make us in the image of his son, Jesus. That's the purpose. And so how do we begin to understand the sadness and depression that we're feeling? How do we begin to understand what categories to put this in? And I'll be honest with you, this is one of the hardest sermons that I've ever tried to put together not because the answers aren't there, but because there's so many different avenues and, and situations and things to think about. And I want you to know that, that I am empathetic to where you're at. I have experienced depression in my own life. I've experienced sadness and sorrow, just like the rest of you. And so I don't take this lightly, but I wanted to give us some helpful frameworks because I want us to understand that that we don't mourn because of the absence of hope like the world does, right? Instead, we mourn with the understanding that hope, that the hope that we have in Christ, we have hope in Christ and that God is using sadness for the purpose of my life. I know this, we know this. And so as I've thought about this broad topic, I wanted to break it down so that we can make some use from our limited time together this morning because we could do multiple sermon series over all kinds of different um, ways that this plays out in life. 
But I've tried to help us have a framework, so I've broken it down to three main categories. That'll be the framework of understanding how we are biblically supposed to process our depression and experience the hope that we have in the gospel. And so as we're thinking through this, there are three main categories. And the first one is, sadness is a godly response to the sin in the world around me. First and foremost, sadness is a godly response to the sin in the world around me. A great example of this is Nehemiah. And so if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, turn to Nehemiah chapter one. I wanna read this together and just break down what happens here in this story. And I think it'll help us understand how sadness helps us have a godly response to the sin in the world around us. Nehemiah chapter one says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of, Sh- of Shiflev, in the 12th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the ear of the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which, he, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you command your servant Moses. Remember the word that you command your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. What a powerful passage. And as we look through this, we see a few things that I wanna point out to us in the character of Nehemiah and it should help us when we're experiencing sadness by the brokenness that we see around us. So when Nehemiah heard about the devastation that was left to the remnant there in Israel because of their sin, it drove Nehemiah to pray. He wept. His sadness drove him to prayer. It drove him to fast and pray. Now, to understand Nehemiah, he was cut bare to the king. He lived in a very luxurious position. Um, This was a high position in this day and time. And so he was not without his, he was comfortable. But when he heard about the sin of the the people and, and the devastation that the sin had left, it caused Nehemiah to sit down and weep and mourn for days and fast and pray. The next thing we see is that it drove Nehemiah to acknowledge the character of God. It drew him close to God. It, it, it made him uh, think about the good character of God and go and, and seek the Lord because of the, the devastation of sin. 
right? We see, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray to you day and night for the people of Israel. It caused Nehemiah to pray. It also caused him to repent for the sins of, of Israel as well as his own house, right? We see that here. He confesses the sins of the people of Israel, which, have, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. When he looked at the devastation that their sin had caused, and the consequences of that sin, it made Nehemiah mourn and weep and pray and confess, right? And then it caused him to remember the promises of God. So he remembered that he knew that if they sinned, that that God was gonna, he was gonna do this. He was gonna drive them out. If you read Deuteronomy and and, uh, Exodus and God continues to promise that if if they listen and obey, that he would keep them, but if they, continue to run after other gods that, that he would discipline them and, and that he would act upon his wrath. And, and he does this after century and, and decades of kings disobeying and, and falling after other gods. Eventually God allowed uh, the nation um, of Babylon and, uh, to come in and, and destroy and, and discipline Israel. But Nehemiah remembered that he knew that if they're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people is what God said. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He knew that God promised to bring them back to the promised land if they would repent and they would remember him as God and God alone. And so Nehemiah remembers this. And so the last thing that we see is you continue to read throughout the book of Nehemiah, that it drove Nehemiah to act. That his desperation, that his conviction, that the mourning and the praying drove Nehemiah to act and to move. And so we know that sadness is a godly response to sin to the world around me. And when we see this sadness, it causes us to, to act, to move. And so I ask you a couple questions. Are you grieved about the sin that you see around you? Romans 6, 23a says, for the wages of sin is death. When you look around at what's happening in our world, when you, when you think about your neighbors, your friends, your family, your coworkers, the list goes on and on and on. When you see that they continue to not acknowledge God or to pursue their own passions, their own pleasures, and you see the devastation that that causes, does that make you mourn? Does it make you weep? Does it make you grieved for the fact that The wages of sin is death. That unless they receive and hear the gospel, does that make you cry and mourn and want to share the gospel with them? And is God calling you to do something? Don't run from that sadness. If you're broken about the people around you, if you're thinking about family members, if you're thinking about friends, if you're thinking about neighbors, if you're thinking about coworkers like we've talked about, and that's a constant point of grief for you, don't run from that sadness. Allow that sadness to make you move. Is God calling us to do something? Is God calling you to do something? First, I wanna wanna look at a couple categories on this. First, I wanna look at, is God calling you to do something generally? And we would say yes. He has generally called all of us to move when it comes to sharing the gospel, right? 
So the first thing when we're, we see the sin and we see the death and we see the brokenness that's in our world, it should move us to pray. And it should move us to pray for those around us that, that God would move in their hearts and that he would save them. We see in Romans 10, one through four, it says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but do not, but do not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, Paul, when he's speaking about this, he's, think, he's thinking about those who are religious, but deny Christ. And this same thing applies to those who completely deny the existence of a God at all, right? Are you praying to God that, that those around you would be saved? Does the brokenness of the world around you, does it call you to wanna pray? Second thing is, does it motivate you to share the gospel and to make disciples? This is a calling on all of us as Christians. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the great commission to go therefore and make disciples is a calling for all of us. And the second part of Romans 6, 23 is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see that the wages of sin is death and those around us without God will, if they, if they perish, if they die, that they will spend eternity apart from God in hell. That should make us sad, that should make us mourn. But we know the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does, are we motivated to go and share about Jesus? Are we motivated to go and share our faith? Romans 10, 11 through 15 says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not, never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How do you expect those around you to come to know Christ, to be saved, unless you're sharing about Christ, unless you're telling them about the good news of Jesus, unless you're caring about them more than you're caring about yourself, if you're motivated, that you're mourning, that you're saddened. I know it's, it's crazy for some of us to think this way, but for some of us, this prolonged sadness that we feel could be just the disobedience of not being on mission for Christ and not sharing the gospel. So we're all generally called to make disciples. But when we see the world around us and we see brokenness, sometimes God uses that sadness to call us specifically into different areas. We see with Nehemiah, God moved him to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God may use our sorrow to uproot us from our comfortable lives and go be a light of the gospel in specific situations. What is breaking your heart? Is it homelessness? Is it orphans? Is it widows? Is it unreached people groups around the world who've never heard the gospel? Is it suicide? Is it sex trafficking? Is it fill in the blank? We live in a world that's full of devastation. We live in a time right now um, that's more uprooted than we've ever seen before. We have issues of protesting and racism. We have a pandemic happening. We have people rejecting um, our, our police officers who are serving and protecting us. And, and 
there's sin happening on, on every angle that we're constantly hearing about and dealing with, economic crisis and pol- political upheaval. And there's just things happening consistently and constantly that breaks our hearts. Is God using this sadness? Maybe he's using sadness in your life to make you uneasy. Maybe he's trying to uproot you and move you towards doing something specific and being a tool, a light of the gospel in a specific situation. But it'll require faith and sacrifice. Many of us, sometimes God is moving us and and shaking us and causing us to mourn and to weep, but we're afraid to take that step like we see with Nehemiah or many other biblical characters because we're not willing to make the sacrifices. See, the gospel has to be more important to you than your happiness and comfort. And God uses brokenness and sadness to strip away the idols so we can see that he is more important and that we would make a mark and make our lives count beyond our own personal comforts and successes. How is the world gonna change? How are we gonna see change? It's not gonna be through politics and, and human ways. It's gonna be taking the gospel into areas that's needed. You wanna see racism change? Take the gospel into that area. We wanna see homelessness change? We gotta take the gospel into that area and we gotta do something about it. We wanna care for the orphans and the widows? We gotta do something about it. We gotta sacrifice. We wanna see every nation know about Jesus Christ, it means we got to go give our lives somewhere else. So on and so forth. Is God calling you just to specifically move? Because here's the thing, he's not going to allow you to be happy in where you're at if he, if he has something else for you. So maybe that prolonged sadness that you're feeling, that depression, may be that God's trying to move you towards an area to be a lie of the gospel. So our first category is sadness is a godly response to the sin in the world around me. Category number two is sadness is a godly response to the sin that is wrong within me. Sadness is a godly response to the sin that is wrong within me. Second Corinthians seven, eight through 11. Paul, he wrote the first letter to the Corinthians and there's a lot of rebukes about sin. And so he's replying in his second letter about some of those rebukes. And what he says here is, says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you. So Paul isn't happy that he made them grieve, but though only for a little while, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see that earnestness, this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. If you're experiencing sadness that can't be explained, start by asking yourself, Do I have any unrepented of sin? Do I have any unrepented of sin? The first thing I wanna encourage you is don't ignore guilt. If you're feeling guilt over anything, explore that because that guilt may be true and you may need to repent of it. 
Don't justify bitterness and lack of reconciliation. Don't justify pride. Don't underestimate unhealthy choices. A lot of times sleep deprivation, unhealthy eating, laziness can all cause feelings of depression. And so those feelings of depression may be indicating that there are other idols of comfort in your life that you're not responding to, you're not repenting of. And so therefore you're not finding the freedom from depression that you're looking for, right? First John, um, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And First John 1, 8 through 10 um, is, is so helpful in this matter. He says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Don't be deceived. You can't hide sin. You can't cover it up. You can't make excuses for it. It is gonna impact your life. And so for some of us, we need to start making changes. And listen, I understand that there may be a lifetime of unhealthy habits, of secret sin that feels like it's insurmountable but I promise you that this passage is true, that he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you may need to come and you may, just, may need to seek counsel. Please, if you're interested and need help, please reach out um, to us at, at the Nehemiah Project, which is our counseling ministry of the Field Church here. Um, and we would love to, to help you and love to, to serve you in that way, but don't, don't put it aside because God may be, prolonging this sadness. He may be bringing this depression in your life because he wants to uproot those idols and he wants to help save your life and change your life and use you as an instrument of the gospel. So if you have unconfessed sin, please come before the Lord, confess that sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cling to that promise. Sadness is a godly response to, this, to the sin that is wrong within us. We see here in 2 Corinthians 7, when Paul is talking to the Corinthians there, I love how he puts it, um, <clears throat> that godly grief, that godly grief produces repentance. What's the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? Well, worldly grief doesn't produce repentance, it produces death. Worldly grief is selfish, it's self-preserving, that we only feel sorry that we got caught. We only feel sorry about the consequences we're experiencing, but we don't see that our sin is first and foremost a sin against God. But godly grief moves us to repentance that we see that the sin, the idolatry is a sin primarily against God. And so we, we run to the cross and we, we run to confess and we, we seek the Lord's forgiveness and we seek help to repent and renew our mind in the gospel and put on what's true and what's right and what's righteous, even if it's hard. And so, once again, don't cover up sin. Don't push it away. Don't be intimidated by the work that's gonna to have to go into changing. But know that that faithfulness to put in the work to change is glorifying to God and it's worship to the Lord. So let me encourage you, respond to the sadness of sin within you rightly with repentance. So we see that sadness is a godly response to the sin in the world around us. It's sadness is a godly response to the sin that is wrong within us. And this last portion, I saved for last, but it's certainly not least, is that sadness is a godly response to the experience of suffering. 
many of us have experienced suffering in ways that we never imagined that anyone should. Maybe it's been abuse. Maybe it's been rape. Maybe it's been fill in the blank. Maybe it's, we've experienced a loss tragically of family members or parents or, or children or whatever the case may be, that it affects us deeply. And there's no way that that feels good or seems that it should be good. But what I want to remind us of is that when we experience sadness, when we experience suffering, we don't go through it without the hope of Christ or the comfort of God. And so I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-11 through 11, to help give us an understanding of suffering in a way that will encourage us. It won't make you feel better. I'm not promising that we'll read a verse and you won't feel the affliction of the suffering that you're going through. But my hope in this section is to help us see that what we should cling to through our suffering is the comfort of God and a closeness with God. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-11. to It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Well, what sufferings is Paul talking about? Well, he gets to it here. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Many scholars think this is uh, what happened to him in Ephesus, that they were rioting because of the preaching of the gospel, death threats and, and things of that nature. Um, and so Paul is speaking about the suffering that comes from preaching the gospel and at the hands of other people. Um, and so when he talks about that you will, as you endure the same sufferings, you'll have the same comfort. He's speaking about um, really hard things. So he says, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the, many, the prayers of many. So we see that they were, they were suffering to the point of despair. And I know that many of us can, can relate to what that means. And they felt like they had even received the sentence of death. But that, what that did was that made them rely upon God, not themselves. And they trust in the God who raises the dead. And so this, this makes us think back to when Paul says in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 21, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That 
When he says the comfort that God comforts us with, he's talking about an eternal perspective, that the God who raises the dead. Speaking of the resurrection, meaning the comfort may not come from salvation in this life. It may not come that you're in a way that your circumstances get better. But with an eternal perspective, God raises Jesus from the dead and he will raise us as well. And we will spend eternity in heaven with God apart from the pain and suffering of sin. But that does not mean that we may escape it in this life. <clears throat> so the gift of suffering is that it allows us to experience the comfort of God. It allows us to be reliant upon God beyond this life. It allows us to be able to look at God in a way of reality and strip away all the comforts that the hope that this life tries to give us. Another thing that it does is that suffering allows us to be a gospel tool in the lives of others who struggle in the same way. That's what Paul is saying. You know, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer, right? So that we may comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. Suffering, it produces this deep reliance upon God and, and it allows us, if we draw close to God through our suffering, to be a gospel tool in the lives of those who struggle in the same way. I've experienced this in my own life. Uh, my wife and I, we've experienced two miscarriages uh, in between our son Hudson being born and our daughter, our daughter uh, Juliana. And in that time of, of trying, there's great joy when you find out that that God has blessed you with another child that you're pregnant. And then the sadness that comes when you find out that, that the baby didn't make it and death has happened, it sends you into a whirlwind. The idea of despair, we can understand what that feels like. In those moments, it didn't make sense. It made me question God a lot. It made me question his goodness. It made me question who he was. It made, him, it made me question why us. But ultimately through that, I realized that, that all I could cling to was God and that he was the one in control and sovereign and he is the only one who can bring about comfort. And it produced a deeper faith in my wife and I that now uh, we've, we've sat with many couples who've went through the same thing. And we've been able to use our experience and talk about God in a way that we didn't know before and bring comfort to those through the gospel, through the message of uh, Jesus Christ and through helping people see the God of all comfort in the suffering. And so maybe the thing that you've went through, God may be using that in order to bring you to be a tool of the gospel in someone else's life or in, in some situation um, that you have a, a deep passion for now because you've experienced that suffering. And last but not least, suffering produces a deep reliance on God that we would not otherwise experience on our own. It's unfortunate because of the comfort of our flesh that if we continue to experience blessing and comfort, we often tend to look to ourselves as gods and we forget about God and we don't experience the real God and God uses trials, James chapter one, Romans five, to produce a steadfastness and a faith um, that allows us to draw near and close to God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says this, 
Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This doesn't feel like good news. I know um, for many of us, we could be listening to this and saying, is this actually good news? Um, And it is good news. But the only way we're able to see hope and comfort and joy through sadness, through pain, is if Christ is truly our treasure. If God's glory is more important to us than our own comfort. And I know that that's tough for us to even think through, but Matthew 13, 44 tells us the kingdom of heaven, speaking of God himself, speaking of Jesus, is like treasure hidden in a field which man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field because the surpassing worth of the treasure that he found. It takes us seeing God for who he truly is, seeing his majesty, his magnitude, his goodness, his glory, for us to understand that the things of this life are, are secondary, they're filthy rags than having God himself. And God, the greatest gift that he gives us is himself. And so the most loving thing he can do is to constantly reveal himself and and make us into the image of his son, Jesus. That's the most loving thing that he can do. But it means tearing away the idols of this world and the comforts of this world and the comforts of our flesh. And so that's why in Romans 8, we read earlier that he uses all things for the good of those who love him to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus. You have to ask yourself, is God's glory more important than your happiness, than your comfort, your possessions, your children, your next breath? Is God's glory more important than these things? I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He gives us the analogy of a house. And I think it, it really helps us understand this concept of seeing joy through sadness. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Our expectation often is to be comfortable in our spirituality. We're okay with getting rid of the big sins in our life and and living a blessed life. But it's a whole other thing to take up our cross and follow him. We've been learning about that. Sam, our other lead pastor, our teaching pastor, has been doing an excellent job walking through Luke and we've constantly seen the expectation of what it looks like to truly follow Jesus Christ. It's like, quite a different house than many of us thought we were signing up for. 
But there's nothing more precious to us than Christ himself and God's glory is what we were created for. And he is right in wanting his glory. And it is our joy to be satisfied in him. So I leave us with this question. Is Christ your greatest treasure? Is God's glory more important to you than your own happiness? If not, that is a reason for mourning and sadness. And let that mourning draw you near to the one who comforts all. Let's pray. Father God, I hope um, that what we spoke this morning is honoring to you, glorifying to you, and helpful to those who hear. God, give us the freedom that comes through your son Jesus, through the gospel. God, help us to see the joy and the glory through sadness. Let us not run from, from its feelings, but let us be moved by it to draw closer to you. And I pray you'd be with us all in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.